0: Over the last couple of years, I've just got to wearing glasses. And uh, it's an, I've got a big old font here. This is amazing. So you'll see me scrolling just because I, I haven't quite worked out how to wear them. You know, like, oh my nose, mum's got a piece of string, but I can't quite bring myself to do it. Um, OK. so. I know that you guys have been um, on a journey um, and you've been over your preaching theme over the last few weeks. And I'm just going to give you a little summary. Now, I'm very scared to give a summary of what's gone before because I've watched you online give a two-minute synopsis of, I think, the whole Bible or something like that. And you were even wearing a waistcoat of power. So I do... I I am scared. I don't have a waistcoat. Um, Genuinely, I don't actually have a waistcoat. And I won't be able to summarise it like this man does. But you have been journeying in this area that we right at the beginning we were created for a a relationship weren't we we were created for a relationship with each other with ourselves with God and with the world but we chose to go our own way we chose that we wanted to find out what good and evil was all about we wanted to be God ourselves and because of that we chose a different path and we were separated from God God chose a group of people he chose Israel the Jews, and he, he wanted to bring his redemptive story through them first and ultimately through Jesus, his son, so that we might live. And us today, living, we're living in the fullness of that, knowing what it's like to be called and chosen by God himself and given life in all its fullness because of his son. The Israelites kept choosing to go their own way. That was a pattern that emerged that they would they would decide we don't need you god we would go our own way and then they would find themselves struggling as god said okay i love you so much i'll allow you to do that and what would happen is that in the end they would cry out to god they would in their desperation they'd they'd call out and he would once again come and save them but after a period of time they got fed up with him again and they went their own way and this cycle would continually happen how many times in our lives does this happen You see, it's really easy to look at the Israelites and think that's their story. This is the Old Testament bit. Let's get on to Jesus. But actually, this is our story too, that we so often cry out to help to God. And he comes and he rescues us because that's what he does. But when we get a bit more comfortable and we don't need his help so much in in our mind's eye, we can go our own way again. And we find ourselves just going round and round the mountain again as the Israelites did. The Israelites were a people who knew what it meant to be exiled to be living in a foreign land and they went they uh in one of their exiles they they went to babylon and after 70 years some of them returned uh, a remnant the bible says returned to rebuild jerusalem and reestablish their home and then what happened from the end of the old testament to the new there was this period of time about 400 years where things appear to be silent where not much happened, nothing was recorded in the Bible. Now, I know that there's not much happening in my garden throughout the winter, but I know that under the ground things are going on, and God is always at work, even when it seems like he's silent and he seems like nothing's happening. We've already mentioned Easter Sunday today. Easter Saturday is that example, isn't it, when when things are quiet. But the Israelites were longing for the Saviour. They were longing for him. They had been desperately awaiting this Messiah to come. How difficult is it for us to wait for a parcel to come when we've got a notification on our phone that says it's been dispatched. It's on its way. It's coming to you. And you're like, where is it? Where is this thing? It's supposed to be coming. I'm waiting. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the postman's going to do if I go out. And then it, it's still coming the next day. You know, oh, now it's left. The, okay, so it was dispatched, but now it's finally left the post office near to me. Okay, it's on its way. It's on its way. And then late at night, you'll get the knock at the door or whatever, and the parcel will arrive. And you, I find that for me, I can be impatient over a couple of days. I don't know how I could cope with hundreds of years. Well, probably couldn't, to be honest. Not many of us can. But for our whole lifetime to be waiting for something to come. Like, when is the Messiah coming? I started dreaming of this when I was 20 and now I'm 50. Generations came and went, still waiting for this Messiah to come. These were a people who were now oppressed by the Roman Empire. They so needed the Messiah to come and to, and to free them. And then the moment comes the big reveal. This moment they have longed for. What's it going to look like? I remember um, seeing a, about a year ago, I saw a clip where it was a, a setup where James Corden was setting up David Beckham. And there was going to be a statue of David put outside um, his football club in LA. And so David went for this sort of this opening, this pre-opening to have a look at the statue. The press were there; everything was going on. And deliberately, the statue had been made to not look like David Beckham. It only had a few dodgy teeth. It had this enormous, great chin and a very big bottom. And um, and so David was there. Everybody was there. The whole thing was a setup. This thing was revealed, and you should have seen his face as he's applauding this statue. And he's talking to them, saying look at my chin, it doesn't look low. look at my bottom on there, no, he, he really had this terrible moment, in, and obviously in the end, James came out, and everything was funny, and, and it was great, but the reveal that David Beckham had been expecting is not the reveal that he got, and I think that that's actually how it was for Israel, in a much more serious way. They had been longing for someone to come and bring them freedom and liberation from the Romans, and Jesus, to many Israelites, to many Jews, would have been very disappointing. They wanted him to come in on a white horse with a big sword, with a big "tada" moment. But he didn't do that. He did come to bring them freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set us all free. But he doesn't do it in the way that we think perhaps he should. Sometimes I think about how I would do a big reveal if I was Jesus. If I was the God of the universe and I was finally coming down after all those years to reveal, this is me, I've come to swoop you all up and to save you, I tell you, it wouldn't have been a manger. My plan would not have been a manger. Mine would have been about fanfares on a national, international, global scale. It would have been beautiful. Everyone would have seen it. You wouldn't have needed to be near to this firework display because the whole world would see my firework display if I was coming to reveal myself to the world but the reveal that Jesus brings is personal it was then and it still is now intimate heart by heart that's what Jesus is interested in and he revealed himself in such a way that not even everyone in the same room knew who he was at the same time if Jesus had come and revealed himself in this room right now, not everybody here would understand that he was the son of God. What a crazy reveal for the king of the universe. But that's how he chose to do it, heart by heart, intimate understanding and revelation. Yeah. Do you remember in the 90s, if you were alive and, um, and you, you saw these things called magic eye pictures, where you used to stare, we used to stare at them for ages, at this sort of 3D image and someone told you that on there, if you stared at it for long enough and you could defocus your eyes, suddenly this image would become 3D. Please can somebody nod that you have any... Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you. I almost got an amen at the back. Okay, so these, these images were, were, were really frustrating before you learned how to do them. Because you would stare, like someone would say, put your nose on it first and then blur your eyes and pull it away. And, you know, what did you look like doing this? <laughs> you didn't know if it was true or not. It felt like, are you having me on? Is there any, why am I just staring at this thing? There's nothing there. And everyone who can see it goes, oh, look, it's a beautiful field with a unicorn galloping over it. And I'm going, <laughs> it's not, it's a line." And you know, like, oh, oh, here it comes. Ah. It, was a, it was an amazing thing. Go see if you can find yourself a magic eye book. There's probably one in the works. They've been trying to sell it there for years. Um, but not everybody in the same room could see that Jesus was the Son of God. And not everybody, when you look at a magic eye, can see it. But it was certainly transformational when you did get it. Yeah. But it was an individual thing. You couldn't do it en masse. Everybody had to have their moment of experiencing it. And that's why John the Baptist in John 1 said, Behold the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And other people just saw a bloke walking by a river. When Simeon in Luke 2 saw baby Jesus in the temple, he said, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations. They got it. Intimate, heart by heart, Holy Spirit at work in their lives. And that's the beauty of God's kingdom. In a world that's all about big reveals and celebrity and fanfare, the kingdom reveals itself from the inside out, not the outside in. Heart by broken heart, getting a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. An upside down reveal. He's interested in the deepest parts of us. He's interested in those parts of us understanding who he is. He gave up his awesomeness. I was trying to think of words. I can't really get them for heaven. The awesomeness, the majesty, the ta as i put here, of heaven to come to us as a baby. Yeah. His arrival, his chosen reveal, wouldn't convince the whole nation in an instant. But rather, it would cause people to question, is he? Isn't he? Oh, I don't know, I can't see it yet. Like the magic eye, not everyone can see it, but once you do get it, it changes everything. Let me read for you Matthew 16, 13 to 19.
1: reveal moments, And there are some game changes in this text, aren't there? In fact, there are two pivot points in this encounter that change the game completely. And they are two questions and two statements that we're going to take a quick look at. So the first is this. Jesus asks his followers, Who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? He starts out there, and I love that. It's such a cool strategy. He doesn't personalize it straight away, he puts it out there. Who do other people say I am? And I wonder if we were to ask that question to those friends and family who don't join us in church on a Sunday, to those people who are out there living a very ordinary life with no frame of reference for this thing that we understand as church, how would they answer that question today? Some people would say Jesus is a good man, for sure. Lots of people acknowledge that Jesus was a good man or maybe even a prophet in their faith or in their religion. Others use the name of Jesus as a swear word, and pretty much that's the only frame of reference they might have. Others would ascribe to Jesus the source of every conflict and and, um, trial and tribulation that they see in the world. It's a conversation I have a lot with people who don't know God. Why, why has he become this kind of figurehead, if you like, for some of the things that have been done in his name that do not represent his cause? Well, and for yet others, Jesus might be a myth that they simply don't subscribe to. A statistic from a Church of England survey back in 2015 says this 40% of people in England do not believe. That Jesus was a real person. That is our departure point. We are living in days of great challenge when it comes to the big reveal. And yet we are also living in days of unprecedented opportunity to share who he is. Who do people say I am? But then, as they answer that question and they talk about different viewpoints of who Jesus is... He turns the table, and I love the way Jesus does this. And the second question comes, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And listen, church, I think that's the question that God wants to ask us again today. Wherever we're at on our journey, however long we have known Jesus, this question never becomes irrelevant, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am when you're in the desert? Who do you say I am when you're wrestling with unanswered prayer? Who do you say I am when you're walking through a global pandemic and you are beset with grief and sorrow for the losses and the setbacks that you've walked through? Who do you say I am in every season of the soul? You see, It's not enough for us to ride on the coattails of somebody else's revelation of Jesus. It's not enough for us to live somebody else's relationship vicariously through them or somebody else's faith story. Who we say Jesus is matters each and every moment of each and every day. we're just going to share a little bit of our journey because we both have slightly different journeys when it comes to coming to know Jesus and our moment of that big reveal.
0: I grew up in um, an active and passionate church family, Um, a family of faith. My dad was one of the deacons in the church, always serving in the church, doing whatever could be done. Uh, my mum served in church too. She played. She was the church organist. Um, ran the girls' brigade. Ultimately, my mum would go on to work for 20 years in Uganda. Um, real people of faith. Real people who love Jesus. And that's the family I grew up in. And I was always in church there were phases when I was only there to get my boys' brigade points. You know, if I didn't go to church on a Sunday, I couldn't win best boy. And that was important to me. You know, I hadn't polished my uniform for nothing. So um, I'd go to church sometimes just to get the points. But what that gave me was an amazing foundation. It gave me an amazing head knowledge and understanding. And when I was 15, I gave my life to Jesus at a boys' brigade camp. And I got um, baptised on the 12th of Feb, 1989. And... um, that was an, an amazing time for me to do that. But then I went to university a few years later. And like so many people, I could have so easily become a statistic of people who fell away from God. Because university at that age is a, it's a trying time. And I realized that I had so much head knowledge and so much grounding. But what I didn't have was an alive relationship in the way that I thought I had it. And so when the temptations of university came, I fell to them. And my faith life kind of fell apart during that time. Many people look back over uni as their, their glory days. And I look back ashamed of who I was and, and who I became. And, you know, I don't go to the reunions because I've got nothing to say. Because I don't know what to say. I, maybe I should go. I don't know. But it, I'm just filled with, with disappointment in myself at how I walked away from Jesus. But, but know this. If you've ever walked away from Jesus, or even if you're, you're thinking of doing it or you're in the process of doing it now, he never walks away from you. He pursued me. He continued to chase me down. And after a couple of years of being at uni, I remember um, going to a boys' brigade camp as staff. And I sat down with my old BB leader, Mr. J. Oh, what a legend. He had been my leader for probably about 13, 14 years. And I sat with him and I said, I don't know whether I believe this stuff. I don't know if I believe it. I don't know whether I'm going to walk away. And I remember him sitting there with tears pouring down his face, saying, well, I'll be here for you, whatever you decide. You need to make your own decision. Um, But I love you, and I'll be supporting you. And his reaction to me is one of the biggest things that held me in faith. Just looking at this man and seeing, why is he so passionate? Why Why is this impacting him in such a massive way? I need to think again. What is it that I'm doing? And I believe that that was a real key moment in my life because I'd been baptised. You know, we think, believe, be baptised, boom, done. But I'd done that because that's what everybody did. Everybody went through that process. And I realised I was piggybacking on the faith of other people and on the procedures of other people. I, I, I piggybacked on my mum and dad's faith, on my family's faith, on my church's faith, my friend's faith, and I'd gone done everything I needed to do. But we were in a church that didn't really understand Holy Spirit. So the Father and Son, yes, we get it. Holy Spirit, just really the final word at the end of a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. But Holy Spirit had not much else to do in life. So how was I going to hold together during university without knowing the love and the companionship of Holy Spirit to pull me through? And you'd have heard it said that one of the longest journeys in life is from your head to your heart. And I had... So much understanding of who God was here, but I didn't have it here. And that conversation with Mr. J on Boys Brigade Camp began my journey from head to heart, and everything changed from there.
1: Wow, what a story. I'm sure many of you can relate. Mine is entirely different. I didn't grow up in church. We occasionally went to church at Easter or Christmas. But aside from that, God was not really part of my everyday life. And when I got to the age of 14, some seismic things happened in my family, which I don't have time to go into this morning. But on the back of that, my, my dad began to be more and more absent from the home. My parents' marriage was definitely definitely struggling and we had to move home and I I was in the middle of my GCSE courses so it wasn't a good time to be starting in a new school but that's what I had to do and there I met a girl who was a Christian and she went to church and she invited me along to her church youth group And I really didn't want to go because I was, I didn't really believe in God, but if there was a God, I was super angry with him. I was angry because I'd seen some injustice and things hadn't turned out the way I thought they would. Not like in the Disney movies where good always prevails and that had damaged my family. And so I thought to myself, well, if there is a God, I'm angry with him. I've got no desire to know anything about him, but I wanted to make friends. I'm a very sociable person, so I thought, well, I'll go, but I'm just leaving the God bit at the door and I walked into a prayer meeting. The long story short is that that night I watched, I argued, I saw something in those people in that room that I kind of wanted but I was terrified about and consistently week after week they showed me love They showed me kindness. They represented who Jesus was. And fast forward a couple of months, I went along to church finally, and and it was a baptism service. A lady was being baptized, and she was telling her story. And she said that in Jesus, she had found a love that would never let her down. And I was hurting. I was feeling deep rejection in my relationship with my dad. I was watching my parents' marriage implode. I was feeling responsible somehow for that. And in the stillness of that room, I breathed a prayer. Jesus, if that's true, I need you in my life. That was it. No one ever explained Genesis to Revelation. I didn't understand that Jesus died on the cross. I had none of that. But whoosh! In that moment, it was like night and day. I felt this overwhelming, unconditional love. I felt that Zio passion that you guys talk about. And I went home and I remember writing a note and I left it on my bedside table and it said, Nikki, remember, you're happy now. You found Jesus. But I didn't even need to read it when I woke up the next morning because I could still feel his presence with me. We didn't stay in that church for long. My family had to move again. My parents' marriage did um, end in divorce. There there was lots of trickiness in my teen years. But that was my game-changer moment. Who do you say I am? Listen, church, are you weary? Are you discouraged? Are you struggling? Are you anxious? Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart today. And he's knocking on the door of my heart. And he's asking that question. How about you? Who do you say I am? And then we have the two statements. You are the Messiah, Peter says. Isn't that just an incredible moment of faith? In that moment, Peter is daring to articulate what the Jewish people have been hoping for for centuries. He's speaking out of his mouth in faith this thing, and and I reckon it was that is-he-isn't-he moment. Of course he'd seen Jesus do unprecedented miracles, yes, but nevertheless, he'd also seen the fact that Jesus was, he was fully man, And so to reach out and declare in faith, you are the Messiah. What courage, what bravery. I reckon his heart must have been pounding in his chest in that moment. It was a light bulb moment. It was fragile, but it was powerful. He suddenly gets it. He's looking at that picture, that magic eye picture, and he finds this whole new dimension the lights have come on and it's a game changer. He finally sees who Jesus really is, this guy that he's been doing life with, this friend that he's been following unreservedly. And nothing is the same again. When we answer that question, when we name Jesus as the leader of our lives, as our six-year-old daughter likes to say, as the leader of our lives, it's a game changer. Nothing is the same again. But then there's this second statement, and this is perhaps the most beautiful of all, because Peter finds that faith, and he steps out on the waters, and when all of his other peers who have walked the same journey and seen the same things are holding back with that question, he personalizes it. You are the Messiah. He's got it. The revelation is there. But Jesus then pronounces over him, you are. Ah, Peter. He literally changes his name. He renames him. He commissions him, if you like, in that moment. And I love this because it says to me that knowing who Jesus truly is, is the key to knowing who we truly are. Just as we pronounce who he is in our lives, he then again turns the tables and renames us. He gives us new purpose. He gives us that sense of intrinsic identity. And the thing that makes it even more mind-blowing in this moment is that actually the last time we see Peter is in Matthew 13. And he has stepped out and walked on the water. But then he began to sink. And I can't imagine how he must have felt to have actually had that moment where he was walking on the water, outrageous faith, And yet he takes his eye off Jesus, and the wind and the waves consume him. And Jesus grabs him with that firm, incredible hand, scoops him up, pops him back in the boat. But I reckon he must have felt like he'd blown it, don't you think? He must have felt like he missed it somehow. He was walking on the water, and then the next thing, he's sinking and it makes Jesus naming him Peter, which equates to rock, even more mind blowing. I don't think Peter felt much like a rock in that moment. I think Peter felt floundering and flaky. That was his last big encounter. And yet Jesus sees the potential within him. Jesus looks beyond his failures and his flaws and he calls out the greatness within and he says, You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Not just Peter, the man, but the rock of this revelation, this big reveal moment on that rock of faith. Jesus promises he will build his church. He gives him a new name. There's this glorious divine exchange. When we give our lives to Jesus when our hearts dare to believe in and trust in his true identity, he turns and redefines ours. He sees beyond our shortcomings. He sees beyond our fragile and floundering faith at times. He calls out the greatness in you and in me. And he enables us to become who we are truly designed to be. A new name for a new life in Christ. So, as we draw to a close today, and we think about those two questions, and we think about those two statements, I want to turn them to you. How about you today? Who do you say Jesus is? We may have been journeying with him for a long time, but as I prayed today, I felt so strongly that there are some in this room today, and like Peter, you feel like your faith is fragile, maybe floundering with some of what you've walked through in recent days, in recent months. And that's okay. It's okay to not be okay in church. I know that's a message you send very strongly here in Zio. But I have this sense that today, for some of us, Jesus is asking us to recommit our lives afresh. It's not that we've fallen away. It's just that somehow we feel a little lost. Maybe we just feel a little less passionate than we were when we first came to know him. Perhaps life has taken its toll. And if that's you today, we want to take a moment to respond as we come back into worship. But for others, I have this sense that Jesus wants to reveal himself to you for the first time. Perhaps you're catching up with this online at some stage. If that's you today, if your heart is pounding in your chest and you're wondering if this love is real, I want to encourage you to take that step of faith, to make that statement. Who do you say I am? You are the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the one that wants to pick me up and dust me off, rescue me, give me a hope and a future. So church, I'd love to pray over us as we come back into worship. Maybe we could just bow our heads in this moment. If today you are Just know that you need a fresh touch from heaven. I just want to invite you very simply, whilst every head is bowed and every eye closed, just to raise your hand, just as a demonstration of, God, I need you. I need you. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. And I'm going to pray for you because I know he wants to touch you afresh. So, Lord, I pray for every person that raised their hands. come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do today, I just declare that the old is gone and the new has come, and Lord, wherever we feel that our faith has become fragile or maybe we're floundering, thank you that your arm is strong to save, Your arm is strong to save and you are affirming each and every one today. They are chosen. They belong. They are yours. And I just pray right now, Lord, for those passion levels to increase by the power of your Holy Spirit, not by might. Not in our own efforts. Come, reignite, rekindle. And I bless you. I bless you in the name of Jesus.
0: Draw close. Thank you, Lord.